Hello, my name is Rainer Hirsch. I am a conductor and comedian, and welcome to my pop-up podcast about the proms, Proms in the Pub. Well, I have watched one prom on TV, sat in a posh seat, well, a seat, and last Thursday was my day to finally get stuck into this year's promenade concerts and stand in the arena of the Albert Hall. Arena. Good name for it. Like the Roman amphitheatres of old, the Albert Hall's arena is the big flat area at the bottom where gladiators would have had their vengeance in this life or the next. It's the natural focus of the venue where, in truth, the orchestra really should be, except they'd have their back to half the audience, but isn't, and beneath whose sticky carpet, according to legend, lies buried one of Adolf Hitler's testicles. Just six pounds to get into the arena, tickets only available on the day. It's what the promenade concerts are named after and what guarantees anyone who performs on the stage a standing ovation, by definition. Well, I'll tell you one thing that has changed in the arena since I was last there. There's no more throwing your money down on a counter and passing through turnstiles like at the football. There's not even contact payment with debit. Who am I kidding? Credit card. That was something of a surprise to me as I bowled up ticketless with just 15 minutes until showtime to be told that tickets are now online only. So the countdown ticking, I started feverishly tapping away on my mobile phone and that's all going quite well until I come to the payment stage. Enter debit credit card details. Ah, I don't actually have my physical card with me. These days, contact payment and everything, I haven't actually seen my credit card for months. It slowly dawns on me that I must in fact resign myself to a promless trudge back to Hirsch Mansions. Then, right on cue, appears my guardian angel in the form of Wendy. Wendy, a gentle lady from Torquay in Devon who is at the concert with her husband and daughter and someone in their party hasn't turned up. Would I like the ticket? Free? Gratis? No strings attached? Salvation. I gratefully accept and enjoy the concert from a lovely seat down in the stalls, chatting in the interval to Wendy and her husband, Mike. They politely turned down my offer of a gin and tonic in the interval, which at £10.25 a pop gave me cause to breathe a sigh of relief. Prices there remind me of a joke. Man goes into the Albert Hall bar. I'd like two pints of beer and a packet of crisps, but I'm sorry, I've only got a £50 note. Barman. Well, you'll have to put the bag of crisps back then, won't you? Regardless, Wendy and Mike reminded me of the great community of promenaders, a feeling that we're all somehow in it together and someone standing outside the Albert Hall looking a bit frazzled is worthy of aid. Thank you again, Wendy and Mike. Why all this effort? Well, because Thursday's concert featured a world premiere by British composer Sally Beamish called Hive, a four-movement harp concerto in all but name. It was essentially the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, but for bees. Sally Beamish has done other insect pieces, actually. Beetles, flies, which is a bit like me, actually. I once trained a mosquito to play the minute waltz. See? I liked Hive a lot, and the harp soloist Catherine Finch even more. Gold sequin jacket, peroxide white hair, red plimsolls, deep, unapologetic bow to the audience before she began. In the applause afterwards, she and the French conductor, Aria Matiak, were joined on stage by Hive composer Sally Beamish. Three women acknowledging the, by definition, standing ovation, not a stiff bow tie between them. Worth the price of the ticket on its own, um, if I'd paid it. Now... If you've been listening to other episodes in this podcast, 
you'll know that the proms is actually presented by the BBC, which we at Proms and the Pub are nothing to do with. But the reason why I'm speaking like this is the announcers on BBC Radio generally speak like this. Uh, we interrupt this programme to tell you that thermonuclear war has broken out. Missiles will be creating a fireball from which there is no escape in three minutes. Which leaves us just enough time to hear this charming pair of Elizabethan dances played on the Theorbo. Though we're nothing to do with the BBC, I've often thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could get a tame Radio 3 presenter to talk to us about what the proms is like from their perspective? Well, we've hit the jackpot. Rob Cowan has previously worked for both Radio 3 and Classic FM, the alternative radio station. He's an absolute mind of information about performers and recordings, and after all these years, he's still as curious as ever. You have been writing about classical music for well over 50 years, Rob. Can you tell me about the first time you ever went to the proms? I think I first went to the proms in the 1960s, um, and I, I actually heard them on the radio, various... I think Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, because I'm a great Bartok freak, and uh, one night I heard this music which I thought was absolutely fascinating but I wasn't quite sure what it was about. Sibelius Fifth Symphony had exactly the same effect on me. I remember going to my mother and said you know mum this music is fascinating but I don't understand a note of it and I remember what she said to me. She said Rob she said it's very good that you admit to yourself that you don't understand a note to it because a note of it because that way you'll be able to develop a proper taste and be honest and not be hypocritical about it. I, I worked on the proms. I worked for the BBC, first of all, um, back in the late 1960s in concert management. And I was working on the proms there. And um, I'll never forget, you know, because I was quite early into Marla. I love Marla. And I remember Leonard Bernstein's recording of Marla's Seventh Symphony had just been released. And I got it out of the library. I couldn't afford the LPs, but I got it out of the library. And I was bowled over by this music. And I remember, and Derek Cook, who was in the next office, had reviewed the recording for Gramophone. You know, I was, oh, I was fascinated to talk to him about it because I was, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't shy or anything about, uh, about approaching him. And I said, hey, Mr. Cook, you know, I was fascinated by this aspect, that aspect. We said, oh, Rob, he said, um, you can't experience Marla 7 without hearing it live. Recordings are all well and good, and that Bernstein recording is terrific, but you've got to hear the piece live. So, as it just so happens, Yasha Horenstein was conducting, I think it was the BBC Symphony Orchestra, in a performance a couple of nights later, and I went. Do you know what? I went straight back to my records. Because, I don't know whether it was the Albert Hall, because I think this was pre-saucers, flying saucers up in the roof. That was Yeah, that was a 68 or something. Yeah, so I heard three performances of Marla's Seven, actually, all at the same time. <laughs> and um, I, I thought, no, this sounds rubbish. And I went back and I played my Bernstein recording, which had been brilliantly engineered by CBS, or Sony Classical as they are then, and um, and the performance was fantastic, which, to be absolutely honest, look, Hornstein's a very distinguished conductor, but his performance wasn't fantastic, and that it made a, it didn't make as much of an impression as the 
the records have made. Hey, now, in a previous episode of this past podcast, by the way, you know that Mana 7 is actually at the proms. The Berlin Philharmonic are doing two concerts in early September. The first one is Mana 7. The second one is uh, uh, Shostakovich 10. And in an earlier edition of this podcast, I completely dissed Mana 7 because I say I couldn't stand it. Tell me what I should, what, what should I be listening for in Mana 7? For me, it's just long and mysterious and with no good tunes. Well, I'll tell you what's wonderful about it. The scherzo's fabulous because it's a sort of things that go bump in the night type scherzo. It's wonderful. And what I love about Mana 7 is when it starts, it sort of, sort of ambles into, in, into action. And it's like he's getting up out of bed and then he thinks, oh, good, now I don't want to know. And he gets back into bed again. And it's a sort <laughs> of stream of consciousness piece. This is what I love about Marlowe 7. It's pure invention. There's none of the neurosis you get in some of the other symphonies. Um, you know, the Ninth is an absolute masterpiece. Das Lied von der Erde is an absolute masterpiece. But the Seventh is honest music. It's Marla being Marla and not allowing anything to get in his way. And the two scat, the two Nacht music movements are wonderful. You know, one of them's got a tango, one of them's got a, um, a motor oil advertisement in it, uh, which you'll recognise oh, when yeah. you hear it. You know, the finale, I think your guest, I think it was... Um... Ivan Hewitt. Ivan also, he's, he also said, well, he said two things about it. One is he found it the hardest to get into, that, you know, the opening theme of the last movement is so banal he can't believe anybody wasted their time on it. And he also said that conductors, Esa Pekka Salonen, for example, have admitted to him that it was the hardest one of the set. You know, they find it hardest to make any sense of. And the reason I feel that that's the case is that it hasn't got, it doesn't have a, a route to the emotions in the way the others do. You know, it's very abstract music. It's halfway to Schoenberg and Berg and Weber and, and that sort of music. It's very prophetic of composers that were coming in the early 20th century or, you know, later on in the 20th century. And the two Nacht music movements, I mentioned those, and that wonderful scherzo in the middle. But the most <laughs> incredible movement, which is rubbish, really, is the finale, which Ivan said... <laughs> I say rubbish. I mean, it's 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 fun because it quotes, I think, Mendelssohn and the Merry Widow and all sorts of things. But I'll tell you something, Rainer. If I heard Marlowe Seven without knowing anything about it, and I heard that finale, I would swear blind that somebody had come along and completed the symphony. Not Marlowe. That was somebody, you know, Joe Bloggs had, had written a finale because Marlowe never completed it. But uh, the publishers lost the manuscript. It's Kirill Petrenko who's conducting the Berlin Phil. There's a recording with him conducting the Bavarian State Orchestra, which is absolutely wonderful. And and Petrenko, for me, as, I mean, there are two conductors on the scene at the moment who are absolutely up there with the best. Petrenko is uh, is certainly one of them, and. Um, I reckon that's going to be a problem. That's certainly going to be one I'll, I'll, I'll listen to, no doubt about that. Well, do you know what? I, I See, I'm making an effort to go to concerts, but I'm going to have to kill for a ticket because that, of course, both Berlin... Actually, no, that concert is sold out. The second one, which I am going to, 
isn't sold out. So I'm going to have to, you know, start very early in the morning. The second one is Schnitka Viola Concerto and Shostakovich Tenth Symphony. I'll tell you something about the Tenth Symphony and the proms. Have you got time for, to listen? Let's do the whole thing. I hope you've got time to tell. Well, the most memorable prom I ever went to, and it's been described as the most memorable prom ever, was the one in August 1968 when the Russians entered Prague. Now, most famously, uh, Rostropovich played Dvorak's cello concerto with the USSR State Symphony Orchestra under Yisveni Svetlanov. demonstrating outside the Albert all shouting and screaming, Russians go home and, and all that sort of stuff. But he gave a, a, a pretty terrific performance. Anyway, they did the Dvorak. Rostropovich did an encore, which was uh, one of the Sarabons from a Bach cello suite, uh, uh, from one of the Bach cello suites of Sarabon, tears streaming down his face while he was uh, playing. It was incredibly moving. But don't run away because it was Rostropovich thinking that that was the highlight. Rostropovich playing a Czech work and uh, Czechoslovakia had been invaded and all, all the sort of emotional stuff there, which of course is tragic and terrible. But the real highlight was in the second half, which was Shostakovich's 10th symphony conducted by Svetlana, which has come out on a dish, not in very good sound, but it's, it was electrifying, electrifying. So Petrenko is going to have to go some with the Berlin Philharmonic to beat Svetlanov and his USSR State Symphony Orchestra. Another Shostakovich work that I'd love to recommend you try, if you don't know it, is the last symphony, the 15th symphony, which is like eavesdropping on his attitude towards death. It's got sort of ticking clocks of percussion that sound like ticking clocks going at various places. You know, quotes from William Tell and Wagner's Goethe Demeron. It's terrifying. And I'll never forget the first British performance. It was on a Sunday morning and I sat in my bedroom at home because I was very young. I was still living at home listening to this work and I found it so exciting and gripping and frightening. It is a frightening piece. So I definitely recommend you you listen to that one as well. Wonderful composer. Do you think do you think that Svetlanov, uh, you know, you you, you met, that was the possibly the greatest proms performance ever? C can you think of another other great from you know from the time that you've been either listening or been involved in it? What are one of the great historical appearances? Well, you know, Maris Janssen's the conductor. Well, his father. 
was a conductor called Arvids Janssens. And he appeared with the, what was then the Leningrad Philharmonic Orchestra, before it became the St. Petersburg Philharmonic, before the fall, uh, fall of communism. Uh, and uh, he did the Tchaikovsky Fifth, which was very much along the lines of Ravinsky, you know, tearing along in the fast lane in the, fast, in the last movement. Fantastic. I think that, because I presented quite a lot of the proms for the BBC in, in the noughties, and one that I was particularly taken with was Vaughan Williams's Ninth Symphony with Andrew Davis conducting. That was a, a wonderful performance, and uh, I felt myself privileged to present it, because it's not a work that I know terribly well. I certainly didn't know it terribly well then, and I found it extremely moving. And there are the last nights, you know. Uh, I, I presented two last nights with Stephanie Hughes, who was absolutely lovely, and uh, they were great fun. You cannot believe what, is, what it's like being in that little box, in that hall, which is absolutely packed, and with flags and colours of all sorts, and people wearing all sorts of daft hats and jackets and everything. It is absolutely exciting. And in that box, you've... you've you feel like the Queen addressing the crowds. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. So I did two of those uh, during my, my stay at, at Radio 3, and I, I loved doing them, really enjoyed them. We imagine that that little box is pretty, you know, like hermetically sealed. Well, obviously, it's, you know, it's soundproof because that's what you want. I mean, can you swing a cat? What's inside? Well, it's dead simple, actually. It's a bit like flying a tiger moth. You know, I mean, it's just a few controls. Um, there's the microphone, obviously, and the switch here and a switch there. Not sophisticated at all. The guy who does all the work, as far as the technical side is concerned, is be is in the box, the glass box behind you. And he will say, you know, come in here and come in there. I remember the first one I did was Mahler Fifth Symphony with Simon Rattle and the Berlin Philharmonic. And um, I, I was having a whale of a time. And, of course, there was a, before the, the, the Marla came on, there was a very long break, a long uh, uh, break so all the instruments could get together and would get repositioned and everything like that. And I'd, I'd been to the rehearsal and I made a note of all the things I wanted to say. And I was going hell for leather saying all these things. And somebody wrote into the message board the next day saying that, who does Rob Keller think he is? He sounded just like a, a racehorse commentator <laughs> because I was going so fast. But, you know, I calmed down a little bit after that. But I, I did enjoy doing those uh, proms and the interviews also with artists and meeting artists in the back of the, uh, you know, down, down in the basement as well. That's interesting. Where are you on the Albert Hall as a venue, at, just as a listening experience? When you're in the box, of course you are presumably getting the recorded sound, what the microphone sound, because you're in your box. But when you're sitting in the audience, you know, how is that as an experience for listening to great music? Oh, it's, it, it's OK. It depends on the music you're hearing. If it's a big, mightily scored orchestral work, then it's going to be impre impressive with heavy percussion, heavy brass. If it's delicate music, then maybe it gets a little bit lost. It, it, it depends. Depends who's playing as well. You know, the piano can sometimes be a bit clangorous, but uh, it's 
yeah, it's okay. I don't, I don't mind it. I mean, I prefer the Barbican and the Royal Festival Hall, though they're not ideal either for different reasons. But the Albert Hall embraces you in the way that those halls don't. Yeah, I actually, uh, in my early days, I just discovered the Brahms Piano Concertos, and I went to see uh, Alfred Brendel play the first Piano Concerto at the Prons, and I was so disappointed. It was like you and your experience with Mahler Seventh Symphony. I just, you know, this thunderous, great, you know, magnificent sound, the imperiousness of that concerto, and there was none of it. It was like it was like somebody playing the piano in the next room. Well, I went to hear Rubenstein play that concerto with Colin Davis conducting, and the worst thing about that, it was the noisiest audience I've ever heard in all my life. In fact, very occasionally you could hear the music above the audience, and believe me, you know Brahms' first piano concerto. It takes some to drown that out with, um, uh, with audience noise, but they managed quite well, actually. don't you like about you know what, what what don't you want from a presenter on on the radio somebody introducing the proms for example well i mean there are a lot of great presenters at radio three there really are and i, I loved working with them and uh, i suppose the only thing that, that that i don't like is if somebody is insincere or they're trying to be so jolly and so enthusiastic that uh, you begin to suspect the sincerity of what they're saying. I'm not saying that that's a common thing with Radio 3. I don't think it is any more than it, it is with Classic FM, although it does happen there as well. But really, you know, sometimes producers say sort of up, 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 come on, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, get it across. Uh, and I think, oh, God, do us a, give us a break. You know, I, I don't need to be that hyper what I need to do is tell people what I think of the music and what I think they might be listening out for if they need to be told. They don't, don't need to be told, but they they might welcome the guidance rather than pressurise or pressure listeners into following the, the sort of pictorial or, or, or biographical um, or narrative uh, aspects of the music that uh, you're trying to get across. I'm not there to convince people that they must listen to what I'm telling them to listen out for. I'm there to guide them. Guidance is the major thing. And, and if some, some presenters are better at it than others. And there are still loads of really good presenters on Radio 3. Um, and there are, there are some on Classic FM. I can't say I like all of them. But uh, I definitely do like some, and I mean, I don't, well, no experience of Scala, very, very little, so I can't comment on, on that station. But um, I think it's a, a, a very important thing to pitch what you're saying in the right way. Try and think about what you're saying. You know, maybe the best thing, as I said, what Richard Osborne had said to me about uh, about being glad I have a script and glad I don't I don't look at it I think the, the the thing is to think carefully about what you're saying weighing up your words that's that's very important I think yeah there is a slight you know when you talk about being up and come on energy and all that that that's what 
strikes me about the TV broadcast sometimes it's you know it tends to be a little bit too happy smiley um, yeah maybe because they think that they're talking to people who don't you know don't listen so often and they have to make it more entertainment if you see what I mean sometimes it is entertainment sometimes it's got a there's a story to be told and and uh, you tell that story as eloquently uh, and as honestly as you can i'll never forget there was um, a performance by the vienna philharmonic orchestra of death and transfiguration by richard strauss and um, i was presenting it on the radio and i worked very hard because it was a time of the uh, the uh, holocaust memorial day and i thought vienna which was generally considered to be worse than Berlin when it came to the anti-Semitism and death and transfiguration, the whole idea of transfiguration. And I, I can't remember what I wrote, but I, I did uh, an introduction to this piece which referenced the Holocaust and referenced, you know, coming out the other end and the idea of forgiveness and, and all these things. And I got the most beautiful email from one of the listeners who had latched on to what I'd said and really, really appreciated it. And very occasionally... You, you will introduce something. And another was a historic performance of Marflast, My Fatherland, a Czech masterpiece by Smetana, done just after the Nazis had entered Prague. And uh, the audience had gone berserk. It's six tone poems after each piece. And at the very end, um, uh, which is it was the last piece called Blanik, which I played on, on one of my programmes and I, I described what happened at the, at the very end. There's cheers and cheers. It's like a Wembley football crowd. You never heard anything like it. And suddenly the audience breaks into the Czech national anthem. I had emails of people who had to draw into the, into the hard, onto the hard shoulder because they were in tears because it affected them so much. Now, if you play music and recordings that affect people's lives in that way, I, I did another one just after 9-11. I did a, a, a late night, all, all, the, all through the night program on the World Service. You know, that's what I'm after, is playing music, uh, very often great music, by composers who have a, a hotline to your heart at times when people near to uh, need to hear it. Yeah, um, sorry that that marvelous um, uh, performance was that that was a recording you were playing a specific recording. It was in fact the Czech Philharmonic themselves put it out, and it was a recording and from 1939. And um, I heard it. A friend of mine put me onto it. And I was so overwhelmed by it, I got onto Suprafon, the Czech national record label, or CD label, and I said, you've got to issue this. And uh, they did issue it, and it got a gramophone award when it came out. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic performance. I think you can still get it. That was a few years ago. Václav Talik is the conductor, and he was the conductor of the orchestra at the time. But, you know, it's all these things which, which have these um, 
these associations which if you explain to people they latch on to what you're saying and they latch on to what they're hearing because of what you've said and I think that uh, that is that is incredibly important. In terms of the prawns um, clearly you know since the BBC started broadcasting the whole concert and was able to record it there have been recordings of every single concert but it's surprising how few of those concerts have made it to commercial recordings. Really, you can look and it's, you know, it's in it's in the tens as compared to the, you know, tens of thousands probably by now concerts that there have been. Why, why is that, do you think? Well, actually, I thought you said it's in the Thames, and I thought that's more accurate. <laughs> that's what that's what happens because to all they... the CDs. They get they, they get whizzed into the Thames like odd job from Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> because um, that I was at the BBC, and the and the powers that be when I was at the BBC, the the philosophy there was if you were at home and you taped for your own entertainment a prom, you, you did it on pain of death. And and so, you know, people did take things. And now, you know, people are actually relying on these enthusiastic amateurs who made recordings going back to the 1950s, the Rostropovich Dvorak Cello Concerto that I referred to before and the Shostakovich 10th Symphony are examples of recordings that the BBC, as far as I recall, didn't have in their archive. So when you say, so they had to, sorry, when they said they did it on pain of death, basically it was illegal to record. That's the right. Concert. That's right. But the fact That's is, it. now <laughs> the BBC searches their, you know, their warehouses and find that these things. It's only those people that have got them, basically. That it's the people who have actually got a tape that they've taken off air uh, from all the different stations. But the BBC was particularly. Uh, particularly fussy about uh, about it but unfortunately I mean you know the Americans aren't anywhere near as fussy and hence the fact that uh, great recordings by Toscanini, Stokowski, broadcasts were regularly uh, uh, being uh, recorded by amateurs and are out there but know, fantastic performances. The BBC hasn't kind of released many of the recordings itself which is a bit surprising i mean given that well they have they have there's a label called ica there was bbc classics before them um they have they have issued recordings and you know instances like the shostakovich uh, dvorak uh, concert where the sound isn't terribly good because you're relying on a an amateur who has sent in a, a cassette that's normally what they are no the bbc did did tape you know the goodness gracious they tape virtually all the hancock's half hours and and in terrifically good sound i'm a great hancock fan and i've got quite a few of the cds here but with music it was it was hit or miss to be honest uh, i i've got i've got a lot of um a lot of recordings that that come from the BBC, but but the, but the Europeans are better. The Germans are absolutely fantastic. The WDR SWR stations uh, have got wonderful archives in wonderful sound, and those labels uh, or, or uh, labels that issue their recordings 
can reissue them cleaned up and they sound almost like mono recordings from the same era that were made in the studio and they're often fantastic performances featuring great artists of the past. I think the Europeans, frankly, are better at it than we are, or have been, not necessarily now. Now I think we're more conscientious about it. Well, one final thing. What is the spirit of the proms, just as a final conclusion? It's a spirit of celebration. That's the thing. You go into the proms and you, you know, you... you... You connect with loads and loads of people who are there because they love music, because they love the the business of listening, because it's fun, because people relate to each other. They sit and they picnic as they're queuing around the hall to get into the arena. It's 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 a beautiful experience, and uh, you know there aren't aren't many places in the world that latch on to classical music that can do it in such a a, a wonderful way and such a celebratory way and that is the spirit of the proms it it makes great art seem greater still because of the the, the zeal and enthusiasm of the people who are attending it rob cowan what a nice man and what a great voice he's like the trusted advisor somebody can tell you what to listen out for thanks again Incidentally, that piece he talked about, the piece by Smetana called Mavlast, recorded in Prague in 1939, just after the Nazis had invaded, is available on YouTube in its entirety. It's really worth listening. Just approximate the spelling of Vaclav Talic, Smetana, and the YouTube search engine will do its magic and come up with the recording. Now, the concert I mentioned at the beginning, the one with the B harp concerto in it, actually began with Shaharazad in a version by Ravel, and ended with the famous Shahrazad by Rimsky-Korsakov. It's the kind of piece that you feel you've somehow heard before, even if you've never heard it before. Can I be absolutely honest though? I've never really liked Rimsky-Korsakov's Shahrazad. As a child, I found the opening tune scary and the rest of it just too bitty. Maybe those tunes could be joined together to make something all a bit snappier. Well, that's something I put to Harry, our resident special guest, and this is what he came up with. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share, or you can get in touch with us at www.promsinthepub.co.uk. See you next time.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.